From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Conservative Scholar Program at CU Boulder was created to hire professors with conservative leanings. But John Eastman has been a lightning rod. He's being investigated in connection with the Capitol riots. Every time Eastman's name shows up in the New York Times or the Denver Post, everybody's at the universities, their hearts just sinks a little bit. We speak to a founder of the program. Then a new report singles out the biggest barrier to fixing climate change. And later, NPR's Aisha Rasko, the former White House correspondent, talks about diversity, her voice, and trusting the president. I think it is good to be even more skeptical and to take that into every dealing with someone who is in a powerful position. I'm Claire from Castle Rock. I'm from Longmont, Colorado. I'm from Fruta. From Wheat Ridge. From Sedalia. Genesee. Kiowa. My wife and I live in Boulder. In Grand Junction. Carbondale. Frankstown. Windsor, Colorado. Hi, this is Amanda in Loveland, and I support Colorado Public Radio because it is just that. It's publicly funded by the people who listen to it, and I think that should be very valued in our society today. It's easy to donate at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. It's fair to say that college professors tend to lean liberal. So 10 years ago, the University of Colorado Boulder embarked on an effort to counter that. It created the position Visiting Scholar in Conservative Thought and Policy. Since then, a number of conservatives have taught on campus, including John Eastman. Now, a House committee is looking into Eastman's role in the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. Robert Paznow is a philosophy professor at CU Boulder. He directed the Conservative Scholars Program for eight years. Professor Paznow, welcome to the program. Thanks. Glad to be joining you. The Visiting Scholar Program is part of the Bruce D. Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization. Academics come in for two to four semesters. They're expected to help foster intellectual diversity on campus. How did the position come about? Well, there's a a widely shared sense uh, on the campus and, of course, more widely in the state that uh, that universities in general and and, and CU Boulder in particular needs to do more to... uh, to, to uh, bring a wider um, a, a, a wider range of opinions uh, to the classroom here here in Boulder, and so this program is an effort to do something about that. Conservative students on campus have often said they feel like outcasts. Do conservatives at the school, both students and faculty, feel their concerns have been addressed by the program? Well, you know, uh, there's there's all sorts of range of opinions uh, from people thinking, you know, what difference does one visiting scholar a year make to uh, people who think even that's too many. Um, I, th- I think the program has definitely made a difference, and it's it's in fact not just one one scholar a year, but the uh, but the Benson Center brings in a wide range of uh, people representing all sorts of viewpoints. Uh, teaching a lot of students, um, it, it, it makes a real difference on campus. Whether, it, whether it's enough is arguable, but it's, it's, to my mind, definitely a good start. Just out of curiosity, do you identify as a conservative? 
No, I, in fact, I, I mean, ironically, I've got fairly standard issue uh, leftist Boulder politics. It's just that I'm one of these leftists who think that the job of the university is to expose students to a wide range of views. And uh, universities aren't doing a great job of that right now uh, in, the, in this country. So I, I think programs like this are important. So are you saying that liberal professors tend to skew the information that they're presenting? No, I'm definitely not saying that. I think um, in general, uh, people do uh, a, a very honest effort to uh, present both sides of the issues and to give their students kind of a, what they regard as, as an open picture and let students make up their own mind. But the problem is, you know, anybody naturally tells the story the way they see it. And so if your inclinations are on the left, no matter how hard you try to, you know, to tell the story in a neutral sort of way, uh, it's tough to keep your views out of it. It's tough for that not to influence uh, the way you tell the story. And so I think it's I think it's important to have people around here uh, who, who really are conservatives, uh, who really see the issues that way. Uh, they, too, will hopefully be in the classroom trying their best to give students both sides of the picture. But I think their own perspectives inevitably influence the way they teach. It works that way for everybody. So did you volunteer and say, I really want to lead this program? <laughs> Not exactly. Um, the, the program started out as a center for the study of Western civilization, and, and that's still part of its mission. There's a lot of folk here like myself who, who study uh, the, the, the great Western tradition of ideas, uh, and, 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 and our work is underfunded and underappreciated, and part of what the Benson Center does is, uh, is, 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 is provide resources for us to do that. Um, but um, as the center came together, it got connected with this uh, visiting scholar and conservative thought program. Um, and um, it made a lot of sense at a certain point to bring these two programs together. And at some point, I, I took a deep breath and said, OK, I'll try to uh, I'll try to run the sort of the joint program that does both of these things. It, I sort of came in through the back door. And we'll talk about Eastman in a bit. But uh, we mentioned you ran the program for eight years. What were the criteria used to look for and choose candidates? Uh, for the visiting scholar position, the goal was to find people who were distinguished scholars, um, who were uh, deeply immersed in an understanding of, of the conservative movement and what it is to be a conservative, um, who were willing to come and teach for us for, for a full year. Um, those are the kind of profile of people we were looking for. and. Um, you know, before, before Eastman, we brought in a lot of really great scholars who uh, contributed a great deal to the university in terms of their teaching and their scholarship. So John Eastman was the visiting conservative scholar for the 2021 academic year. Eastman's a lawyer for former President Donald Trump, and he was at CU during the riot at the U.S. Capitol in January of 2021. That was following the election of Joe Biden. Eastman's role is being investigated by the House in retrospect, how do you look at Eastman's appointment and then what's transpired since then? Well, I, I don't mind saying that it was a disaster for uh, for, for the center, for the university. Uh, you, you know, I, I said that we brought in a lot of good people. Um, with Eastman, uh, it, it turns out to have been a mistake. Um, whether that could have been foreseen in advance, 
you know, I, I won't speculate on that. I, I might add that I've got an alibi. I was on leave and in Paris when, uh -huh. when all of this happened. So <laughs> just to be clear about that. Um, but um, it's, it's been very bad for, for, for the university, and it's specifically been bad for the center. Uh, before Eastman's arrival, there were a lot of people at the university who were kind of grudgingly willing to concede that the center had its place, that it could play an important role. Uh, and um, a lot of those folk have pulled back. A lot of departments just refuse to have anything to do with the center now. Uh, I, I hope that will fade in time, but, but it will take some time. Eastman came on campus in the fall of 2020, as we said, before the presidential election. Were there any indications that this might have been a path he would take? Any indications that this should have disqualified him from the job? I don't see how anybody could have predicted this. Um, I, I mean, Eastman's qualifications on paper were extremely impressive. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, one could look back at his record and, and look for look for signs. And, and perhaps there are signs. I don't know. Um, but uh, I, I think I think his appointment was was understandable. And, uh, you, you know, it, it was tremendous bad luck for, for, the, for the whole state that uh, he, he became associated with it in this way. What are the challenges to filling a position like this? Uh, and with any professor that leans liberal or conservative? Well, right. Um, it's, it's for sure problematic uh, to be searching for people and looking for people who, are, who, who, are, who have a certain political perspective. And, and we're trying not to do that. I mean, we're trying to find people um, who are going to be um, effective uh, and spokespeople for a more sort of conservative um, picture. Um, but um, it's, it's so the people who tend to be good at that are the people who also, uh, you, know, you know, believe in that conservative mission. And so it's, it's, it's tricky to do sort of a search for someone in which you're looking for someone who's a good scholar, you're looking for someone who wants to be here, you're looking for someone who wants to teach for us, and you need to find someone who has this sort of um, conservative perspective on things. Um, so, so it's tremendously challenging. And I, I expect, you know, there'll be future challenges down the road as, as, as we continue to try to look for people with the right sort of profile. Yeah. What are going to be the challenges to filling a position like this and moving forward with it? Well, I think I think Eastman's um, case is also going to make it challenging to find further visiting scholars. We had a very good track record established and we were bringing in year after year impressive people. I'm no longer involved in the search or the whole hiring process, um, but um, I, I'm sure it's going to present challenges uh, to, to find people who want to who want to um, sort of follow um, in Eastman's heels in this position. But there are a lot of super interesting people out there. And and this is a very obviously it's a desirable place to live. It's a great university. There's a lot of people who, in principle, would love to be uh, involved in it for a year. Um, so uh, hopefully as time goes on, uh, the, the center can kind of rally and reestablish its, uh, its sort of respectable credentials and continue its sort of tradition of, of bringing in great people. Is there a place that you would advise those people hiring to look? Oh, I don't know. I, um, not really. I think the center is becoming increasingly well-known around the country. Uh, and in a lot of people's eyes, it's a kind of model. Um, 
that's been diminished, of course, with, with the whole Eastman affair. But even so, it's become a kind of model for how a university can do something like this. And so the, the word about the program is out there. And I think it's just a matter of, of reaching out uh, and, and letting those people know, hey, we'd love to, we'd love to have you come for a year. Um, and, and like I say, I think that's I think that's a good thing for everybody. I think it's I, I think everybody on the uh, involved in the university should be should be glad that this sort of thing is going on. It makes the university stronger. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Robert Paz now directed the Visiting Scholar in Conservative Thought and Policy program at CU Boulder for eight years. John Eastman was the school's Visiting Scholar for the 2021 academic year. Eastman's a lawyer for former President Donald Trump. He's also the subject of an investigation by a U.S. House committee. It's looking into his role in the riot in Washington, D.C. following the 2020 presidential election. When we come back... What may be the biggest hurdle in the effort to fight climate change? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Last fall, we introduced you to Jim McKinney, a Park County man scraping by, living in little more than a covered up hole dug into a hillside. It's not that easy. You know, a lot of people there, they're all about being off grid and how cool it is, but until you live it, it's, it's pretty tough. We check in on how Jim has fared through the winter. Listen to the conversation at CPR.org. Humans now have the technology and science to avoid the worst consequences of climate change. The biggest barrier now is politics. That's the conclusion of hundreds of scientists who contributed to the latest United Nations climate report. Max Boykoff is one of them. He's a professor of environmental studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. He studies climate communication. Max, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrea. This report comes from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's the third report from the panel in the last 12 months. What's the difference with this one? Good question. Yeah, just to give a little bit of context, the first report that came out in the fall of last year was focused in on the physical, uh, natural science dimensions of climate change. The second report was focused in on adaptation and impacts. And this third report is focused in on mitigation as well as policy action or inaction. There will be a fourth report coming out at the end of September on synthesizing the three, but this is really the third of the three major reports. What was your contribution to it? I was invited in as a contributing author. There's a set of main authors, and then there's a set of us contributing authors. It's over 600 people total that contributed to this report. And I had been asked to uh, write on media representational practices and how that influences uh, our attitudes, intentions, beliefs, perspectives, and behaviors around climate change. I was also asked to write about social norms and actions, as well as policy dimensions and climate change counter movements. That's to say those uh, groups that t get that uh, tend to obstruct deliberately uh, uh, active climate action. And we'll talk a bit about that in a minute. But our climate team went looking through this part of the report. The total report is more than 3,000 pages dense. Your conclusions on climate misinformation are buried deep in those pages. Is that what you expected? Yeah, I think so. It, um, it is a step forward in that this is the first time that it's really been put within the report itself. But um, you have to go looking in the technical summary, which is 
summary is a pretty, uh, I think, uh, generous way of putting it. It's quite long. Or the full report itself uh, to go find all of this. The, a key dimension of this is that the summary for policymakers, which is what most people read, has to be signed off by 195 governments. The last two weeks have been spent in plenary session going line by line negotiating this. So anytime any government is uncomfortable with with clear writing that there are climate obstructionists that are linked to fossil fuel interests or corporate lobbying, uh, those can get struck. So I'm not impressed that it didn't appear in the summary for policymakers, but the technical summary in the full report are under the control of the author. So it is an advance that these the language did make it into those uh, documents. A press conference Monday really spoke to what we're talking about. Jim Ski, an IPCC chair, noted that politics are the main barrier to action on climate change. But then a reporter asked him to name specific politicians who are obstructing climate progress. It is not IPCC's job to comment on the policies of individual countries or organizations. So, uh, as you know, we're trained to deflect questions like that, and and I I hope I've deflected it uh, sufficiently. So, what did you make of that response? Yeah, it was a good question from Sarah Kaplan at the Washington Post. And it demonstrates, you know, some of the limits of the IPCC, but then also some of the opportunities of those uh, contributors like me to the IPCC to take that next step. So, you know, since the IPCC was formed in in 1988, it, it developed this mantra of policy relevant, not policy prescriptive. And that's really proven to be a tightrope to walk, especially when we get to this point where we can no longer ignore the fact that politics and status quo interests, not science, not even money, uh, not technology, are now the primary barriers. And so that question to him and his skirting of it, it makes sense. I mean, I think the IPCC as a scientific body is in some ways structurally incapable of addressing political power. However, those that contribute to it, like me, it is part of my job to actually be able to answer that question, be able to do it uh, definitively. And so that's where I've uh, been doing work in the social sciences myself. That's where I've been uh, pulling together others' work in the social sciences to get into that report. Overall, we went through 18,000 scientific papers, and we do have some clear statements in there that Jim Ski is not able himself because he's right at the center of the process to address. But to just give you an example, uh, some of the social science work that we have done is, has, has found that 90 largest industrial carbon producers are responsible for nearly two-thirds of industrial greenhouse gases since the Industrial Revolution. It's worked by Peter Frumhoff, Richard Heed, and Naomi Oreskes. This is a way to get a little bit more specific. There's this tendency to, and there has actually been an active uh, campaign to put the responsibility on us as individuals and consumers. You know, on one hand, we are all responsible, but it by only limiting it to our individualized or atomized actions, we only make modest greenhouse gas reductions. We need to address this and confront it for what it is. And we need better building codes. We need better urban planning. We need better vehicle efficiency standards, carbon pricing, low carbon infrastructure. And this is about policy. This is about leadership going forward. Max, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.
Max Boykoff is one of the contributors to the latest United Nations Climate Report. He's a professor of environmental studies at the University of Colorado Boulder and studies climate communication. When we come back, insights on covering the White House from NPR's Aisha Rasko. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the early years, Colorado's capital moved around the map a lot. During and after the Civil War, Colorado Territory's legislature, governor, and Supreme Court met intermittently in Colorado City, now Colorado Springs, then in Golden, then in what was called Denver City. After statehood, the Constitution called for the matter to be settled by a vote in 1881. Towns across the state resented the political, economic, and social dominance of Denver, and they made their pitch to the people. Salida trumpeted its virtues in newspapers. Canyon City held two conventions to coordinate its own anti-Denver movement. Del Norte stepped up. But in the end, more than 30,000 Coloradans voted for Denver, five times more than voted for the second-place contender, Pueblo. With thanks to historian Derek Everett, this is a Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Aisha Rasko was recently named the host of NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday. She's been a White House correspondent covering three presidential administrations. She recently joined my colleague KRCC's Abigail Beckman in front of a virtual audience. Tell us about that switch. Has that been a career goal for you and what are you excited about? Well, I, it wasn't a career goal for me because I don't think I ever thought something like that would be possible, honestly. So I really think it's still sinking in. But it has been, you know, just an amazing journey at NPR. Um, you know, I started in 2018 covering the, the the Trump administration. I really got to travel all over the world covering him. Um, and covering the White House. And I spent six years covering the White House. Uh, So it was a good time to try to transition to something else um, and to kind of like spread my wings a little bit. Uh, And so, um, you know, now I'm the host of Weekend Edition where I get to do all sorts of things. I'm doing, you know, the the political news that I'm I'm used to doing, but then I'm also, you know, reading amazing books and and I'm doing the puzzle. So it's just it's a lot and I love the the variety. And as you spread your wings in this new role, um what will you miss about your beat at the White House? Well, you know, I had a dream this week about being in the White House briefing, questioning Press Secretary Jen Psaki. <laughs> um, so I think that's one of the things that I will miss, like being in the briefing room. And you, I mean, you're really, you're talking to um, representatives of, you know, one of the most powerful positions in the world, right? The president of the United States, the leader of yeah. the free world. And you are able to ask some questions and press them on issues of the utmost importance, right? That are affecting people's everyday life, life and death issues. And so being in that, that position and being in that moment and also, you know, going on trips and being 
at all these historic moments. I will miss I will miss that. But I really am looking forward to still being able to question people in power and still being able to tell people's stories in my new posts. And I'm sure there's a lot of camaraderie within the press corps. Is that something? Tell us more about that. I've always been curious about how that feels. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that was really, you know, one of the things that came to my mind as well is the fact that there is like the White House press corps, you really get to know the other people in the White House press corps. And oftentimes when you're at the White House, you may be around other people in the White House press corps even more than you're around people, um, your colleagues at your own outlet. So because you are you're in the van with them. They have these things called the White House pool. Um, and that is like the 13 to 20 reporters who follow the president around every day. So they, those are the people who are in uh, the Oval Office or, you know, these are the people who are with him every step he goes, the president goes. So you may be in a van with the, you know, with your colleagues in the White House press corps for six or seven hours, right? You may be (laughs) on a plane flying to Poland or wherever, or flying back from Vietnam for 10, 11 hours, right? Like, so you are with people in very close contact in quarters and you get to know them very well. And so, and there is a camaraderie, right? Like it, yes, people are competitive, but there's also people will help each other out that, you know, you're working to try to figure out what did he say? What's that quote? People will, you know, give you the quote, you know, like we're, we're all trying to, to get, you know, get basic information out. So in situations like that, people work together. What, what did he say? He was kind of far away. What happened? Like, so you're all kind of working together and then, and you make really good friends, especially like on trips and stuff. So, so it's a really good situation. And what about things you won't miss? Maybe those 10 hour flights and close quarters is that? <laughs> well, I will miss like Air Force One is nice. So being on Air Force sure, One is nice, yeah. but being in the vans for 10 hours, no, I will miss that. Um, I won't. Yeah. There's a lot of, with the White House job, there's a lot of hurry up and wait, right? Like, so you, you're, you know, you're brought outside the Oval Office. You might stand out there for 45 minutes in the, in the heat, in the cold, whatever. If the meeting's taking longer than they thought it would, or they decide, oh, we were supposed to do it at the beginning of the meeting, bring you in, but no, we're going to bring the press in at the end. Like there's a lot of like just standing around and waiting <laughs> for the next thing. And then sometimes it's just not, you know, super glamorous. Like you you know, you could be at this fancy event, but they're only letting the press use some stinky porta potties or something like that. Oh, it's no. not always, <laughs> it's not always glamour, and it's a lot of running. It's a lot of running in the press pool. People don't really realize that, but like, you know, like when we're standing under the under Air Force One under the wing, we catch the president coming out. He hops into his, you know, he hops into the beast, the big limo, or he hops into his SUV, then we have to start running because our vans are way at the back end of the the motorcade line. And the press people are always like, they will leave you like the, the, like you know, because it's like a security thing. So it's like, if we don't make it to the van, like we, we will get left behind. Now I've never seen this happen, but that's always the threat. So you got to run. And I've done this like six, seven months pregnant. Like I've any holding, you know, holding heavy, carrying gear and a boom mic. And it's not fun. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that sounds I hope you had some comfortable shoes then. Oh yeah, oh, that's a must. That's so fashion <laughs> goes out the window for me. So yeah, it's definitely sneakers, it's flats, because you never know when you have to take off and run. And I'll tell one story. When we were in, I think we were in um Brussels for like a NATO meeting. Um and we had to the White House press corps, all of a sudden they were like, You have to run because there's gonna be a two-way with some um, you know, with President Trump and some other world leader. And so the why we're running and the people, other people see us who are not in the press pool, just international. And they like laughed at us because we were just running <laughs> through these hallowed office buildings and they were just cracking up at like, what are you doing? Like we look crazy. Well, and you mentioned it's kind of a hurry up and wait situation. So with all the information that comes out of the White House, it seems like there aren't really that many opportunities to actually question the president. Can you speak to the challenges that that might present when you're trying to cover that beat? Well, it depends on the president. With Trump, there were a lot of opportunities to uh, question him because anytime the press was brought in, he was open to taking questions, you know, whether it was in the Oval Office or whether... You know, he was heading out to Air Force One. So there were, and even, I mean, even with Biden, I mean, there's always an opportunity when you're by the president or in the pool to shout a question, right? Like they won't always answer, but sometimes they do. And sometimes they will stop and Biden will stop at the end of an event if he wants to, and he will take questions. But there are times when you may not be seeing the president right every day or, you know, so there there is a challenge in you're talking to the press secretary and depending on the White House, they could have be very controlled in their messaging. And sometimes, you know, it can be hard if they're if you can't find people who are willing to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it may be the case that, you know, people don't know exactly what the decision hasn't been made yet, right? Sometimes the White House is very controlled and they don't have leaks. Other times people may be talking, but if that's not actually what's going to happen, it's not very helpful, right? So sometimes the right hand doesn't always know what the left hand is doing. So it's trying to find people who are credible and have that information. And whether it be a Democrat or a Republican in the White House, the press corps is often known for pushing back and questioning the information that you get from the White House. You recently did that after the Biden administration announced the death of Islamic State leader. Um, that was Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qurashi. And you were asking for proof that he actually detonated the bomb that killed him and his family. Why was it important for you to ask that? One of the reasons that I pressed on that issue that day is because they were you know, making the claim that all of the civilian deaths in this instance um, happened because, you know, this leader, this ISIS leader had a bomb on himself and it wasn't, had had nothing to do with the U.S., you know, raid. And, and, and that absolutely may be the case, but the U.S. government Um, especially you could talk about fog of war sometimes, especially this was like the day after the raid. So Mm -hmm. sometimes things are not totally clear afterwards. Sometimes you think you have certain information or they think they have certain information. And then it turns out a couple of days later, it's like, oh, that actually wasn't the case. 
And there are times where the U.S. government has actively not been honest about, and this is for, you know, this is Democrats and Republicans have not been honest, especially when it's come to military things. uh, And the truth has come out later. And so I feel like it's always appropriate to when you have a government saying, well, this is what, you know, listen, this is what happened to say, well, do you have any evidence of that? Do you have any proof of that? And obviously there's classified information. I'm not expecting them to give away sources and methods, but Mm -hmm. there are times when the federal government, if they, you know, when they want to provide some proof, there are times when they do provide information because they want to back up what they're saying. And I think, especially when you have a public that doesn't always trust the media, doesn't always trust the government, it is always in the interest of transparency to ask and to press for more information and to press for more facts. I really think it's our duty to do that. And when they can't provide the information to say, they say that they can't provide the evidence, but this is what happened. To be honest about what we know and what we don't know. So following that thread of a contentious relationship with the press, and that was definitely true with the Trump administration, he could be especially insulting to female journalists and women of color. What what was your take on that? What was that like to be in that situation? It was, uh, it, it was a situation where absolutely there were times where I, I did wonder, did I have a target on my back? I didn't have like some really serious run-ins with Trump, but- you know, towards the end during the pandemic, he he got kind of upset at some of my questions. But mm-hmm. for the most part, I didn't have a big run in. But there was a moment there. There was a span of time where he attacked April Ryan, um, who is now with the Grio, a black woman. He attacked Abby Phillips, who's with CNN. He attacked Yamish Alcindor, who was at P- with PBS at the time. She's now with NBC. And I was sitting right beside Yamish um, when that happened. That, and that was in a very short period of time. And there are not a lot of Black women reporters in the press corps, right? So it was right. just like back to back to back. And there was a feeling of, for me, you know, is, is he going down the line? Like, what is going on? Because at that point, it's like there, there's not that many of us. And yet in like three days... They've all been attacked and, and some and some in really personal, you know, ways. Um, and, and and so, you know, I am a black woman. I, you know, I and I'm a human being. And so you do feel that you feel some of that um, just like wanting to do your job and wanting to be able to do your job respectfully, but to get that respect back. Um, and to feel like people like you are maybe being targeted, it's, it's, it's not a good feeling. Um, and so it, it was difficult at times. And I can imagine picking up on that trend as a group is like, what's going on? Why is this happening? Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, it's a feeling of, um, you know, and like I said, I mean, you know, it's, and he was lodging insults. And Mm -hmm. so this wasn't just, oh, I didn't like this story, or I think that, you know, this was really, you know, questioning people's, you know, intelligence Um, and, you know, really below the belt things. And, you know, we all come to do our jobs. And and certainly it is not my job to be liked by presidents or or the people that I cover. That's, That's not the way things work. 
but there's a certain, you know, level of professionalism that I will always try to bring. And, you know, you, you want that in return, just as, just as a human being, you know, my mother, my children, my loved ones are watching this just like everyone else. And, and they don't want to see their, their loved one mistreated. So moving on to uh, NPR, there's been a recent exodus of people of color from NPR, Adi Cornish, Sam Sanders, Lulu Garcia-Navarro, Noel King. Can you share some insight as to why you think that is? You know, I, I've, I, I feel like I cannot speak for others on why they have left. Sure. Um, and so I, I leave it to them and, and some, and most of them, I think have talked a bit about their decisions to leave. I do say overall NPR, like every other outlet has work to do when it comes to, uh, retaining talent from people of color, um, to, you know, hiring and retention, and it is an issue throughout the entire industry. Uh, there is no mainstream outlet um, that I think has really gotten this right. I think it is a process. And I think that every outlet really needs to, to work on that. And I think NPR is not alone in that. Um, you know, they have said that they do want to work on, you know, keeping keeping host and, and figuring out what's happening. Um, and so, you know, I take them at their word. You know, John Lansing, who's over NPR, has said that he wants, that he's committed to diversity and he's committed uh, and made that, you know, really the mantra and made it a priority. And so, you know, we just have to see what comes of that. I, I will say that my experience at NPR, um, I, I've, I've had a great experience at NPR. You know, the audience has embraced me. My my coworkers have been so supportive. And every host that has left, I believe I've talked to, you know, all, all four of the ones that you named. I, I, you know, I've talked to them. They've all been so kind and so supportive of me and, you know, moving up at, at Weekend Edition. And that has really made me feel better about going into this new role, knowing that I, I've had their support and their backing. And, and that has been, that has meant a lot to me. Now, many national broadcast journalists speak with a white Midwestern accent, even those who aren't white or from the Midwest. Have you ever received criticism for how you talk or do you ever feel pressure to code switch? I have definitely gotten criticism. I will say, and, and I've said this before, like to the credit of the NPR audience, I've gotten a lot more love than I've gotten, you know, hate. I've gotten a lot more um, people that have embraced me than people who have, you know, been upset about the way that I talk and the way that I, you know, speak English. <laughs> um, there are a lot of people who, they don't, you know, who have had an issue with it and have had an issue with um, my sound. But there are a lot more people who have embraced me. And to the credit of NPR, NPR never came to me and said, hey, we need you to clean up your words. You're sounding a little bit, you know, you're not sounding the way we want you to sound. I did. T I've, I've, I've had vocal training at NPR, mm -hmm. but it was just to help me get the words out and to sound like myself and to, you know, help me like read scripts in a way that doesn't sound like I'm reading. But it was never like, okay, you need to fix sounding the way you sound, which is like a, a Black woman who's raised in North Carolina. 
And, and so that is to their credit. And, you know, I have, there are certain things that I did say at first that I have changed a little bit. I'm not going to say I haven't changed anything. I used to say mm-hmm. can't a lot. People, you know, I got some, you know, and I got, you know, emails from black and white people, not a whole lot, but just a few. Um, and they would say, why are you saying can't? I didn't know that I was saying can't. I didn't know that everybody else didn't say can't. Um, they say can't. So I do mm-hmm. say can't now, um, but <laughs> I, and then, but I did get to a point where I was like, look, you know what I'm saying. You know the words that are coming out of my mouth. I'm not trying to, I don't ever want to distract from a story if I'm telling a very serious story. I'm not trying to distract from it with my voice, but at the same time, like, you know what I'm saying. So you're going to get the words as they come out of my mouth. And, you know, if I had a British accent, nobody would be upset about that and say, oh, my goodness, why are you talking with this British accent? I'm British. Mm-hmm. You, they'd just be like, I'm British. That's why I right. talk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No one would be mad about that. And even though they say words a little bit differently, right? Like, no one would be upset about that because that is thought to be, like, a very smart, intelligent <laughs> language or not language, but accent in, in the U.S. So, but like the way that I talk, which is the way my mom talks and my grandma and my, you know, and my, my grandparents, the way they have spoken, when my aunts speak, you know, that is, is just as valid, right? And I, I hate the idea that the way you talk means that you're not professional, that you're not smart, that you don't work hard, because I work hard. And so I never want, you know, people to think that, oh, you're not putting in the work. I put in work on the way that I read scripts. I, I work hard hard on that. And just because it doesn't sound the way you think it should sound doesn't mean that it's not right. Speaking on the radio, I think is a lot harder than most people think yes. anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> it is a yeah. lot harder than people rec- realize. Like It yeah. is hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so you started in print. What prompted you to switch over to radio? Um, you know, speaking of like hard transitions like that, right. <laughs> like moving from print to radio, um, that's when I learned how hard it really is. I never knew that I wanted to do broadcast. It wasn't something that I aspired to. I looked at myself and said, I'm a writer. I'm, you know, that that is what I'm going to do. I majored in what was at that time called print journalism. And so I, I said, that's, that's what I'm going to do. And so I spent the first decade of my career at Reuters, a newswire, and I, you know, I, I covered energy and, and, and um, for many of those years and then went on to eventually cover the White House. But I, at a certain point, I had been there a decade and I was ready to do something new. I, you know, I'd been there a long time and I was ready for a new challenge. And during the Trump administration, Everyone was paying attention to the White House press briefings. Um, you know, Sean Spicer was in there, and this was being carried live by every major network. Um, so all of a sudden, there were all these eyes on the briefing. And so people were, you know, seeing me ask questions, and I started getting asked to do TV and to do radio. And once I did it, I got bit by the bug. I was like, oh, I. I like this. I can do this. I used to think I couldn't do broadcasts. I was like, I'm not really good at talking. And so I was I was wrong about that. I see now I was wrong about that. But once I started doing it, I was like, I really like this. This might be a good change. I'm still doing the news. I'm still being a journalist, but I could do it and I could tell stories in a different way. And so, you know, NPR reached out at a certain point and, you know, the rest is history. 
I have another question about covering uh, the Trump administration. While you were working as the White House correspondent, you saw the rise of disinformation coming out of the White House. What was that like? And then more importantly, what do you think institutions from the media to election supervisors need to do to build back trust with people? It's a really hard question. And I don't know that we have like the answer to that. Like, I don't, I don't know that we have the exact answer to that. I hope that we're working on it. Um, and I know that we are. I know we have a lot of reporters covering disinformation. I think part of it is, is a bit of like what we talked about earlier is saying when we don't know things and being transparent mm -hmm. about that and being transparent about what we know and what we don't know, what we're being told. Um, and we're telling you what we're being told, but we're not being provided evidence for that. Uh, and you did see the rise of that with Trump. You saw the rise of outlets um, in the past, if a president said something, it was generally accepted that it was likely true. Like it wasn't something that you questioned out of hand um, for most things. I mean, obviously there were things that that would be questioned, um, but there was this idea that a president wouldn't just say knowingly say something that was not true, that would later be proven to not be true. They might massage the facts. They might try to spin, but they're not going to just say something that's not true. But during the Trump administration, it became clear. And I'm not saying that, you know, the press should have had that idea. You know, you should always question. But it was, I think there was a difference in the way that we handled things like that. And when President Trump, or then President Trump, started saying things like, oh, they, the U.S. has a deal with this company, and it would turn out there was no deal, then the company didn't know anything about it. That's when you start saw outlets saying, you know, Trump says this without evidence. And when he started making wild accusations against people, there was a question of like, how do you cover that? Do you repeat wild accusations that are being made with no evidence at all? Uh, and I think what you saw is, you know, trying to figure out how to deal with that. There were things like true sandwiches. Like, so you say the truth, then you put the, the thing that was said that is not true. Then you say the truth again. Um, right. to try to drill that into people's heads. And I, I think it's something that we're still trying to figure out. But I think that, you know, every, and I'm not saying that presidents before Trump were not pressed, but I think it is good to be even more skeptical and to, to take that into every administration and every dealing with someone who is in a powerful position. Um, and and to, to make sure that you're not just repeating what people, you know, rich and powerful people say. Um, or poor people or anybody that you, you know, as a journalist, the, the ethos is supposed to be, if your mom says she loves you, check it out. And so that's what <laughs> we should do. You that's know? funny. I haven't heard that before. Right. Oh, you yeah. Have, oh, yeah. Uh -huh. you know, if your mom says she loves you, check it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do have a question from an audience member. What do you do to get the attention from Jen Psaki? So in Jen Psaki's briefings, it was pretty much like she would go. So she started with the AP and then she would kind of work her way down the front row. She kind of went through the line. You're, you're constantly like raising your hand, just trying to get her attention. But she kind of just went down the line and then she started going back down the line. So that was pretty straightforward. I will say like during the Trump administration, like with Trump, when he would have his press conferences and stuff like that. It was much more all over the place because he didn't have a list that he called. He would just point at people. He wouldn't call people by name unless they were like TV and he knew them. And so in those instances, it really was, you had to be in a, you 
like, and reporters would stake this out. You had to be in a position where um, you would be in his eyesight, in his eye line. Um, there were some reporters who would talk about trying to wear bright clothing. <laughs> so oh, that's they, interesting. So they could yeah. get his attention because he was just calling on people. He was just pointing. Uh-huh. Um, and sometimes reporters, if uh, if someone, another trick is if someone points in your direction, but they might not be pointing at you, you just jump up and start asking your question. And then <laughs> just try right. to press <laughs> on. Now, the other person may jump up too, but so sometimes you have to be really bold to do that, but reporters really do do it. So you just jump up, start asking, and hope that they'll just let you go. And then say, okay, we'll go to the person next. So there are kind of tricks to the trade. But, like, that's, yeah. But in a regular briefing, like, with the press, um, with Jinsaki, it was pretty standardized. What is your favorite part of your job with NPR? Uh, yeah. I love telling stories. Um, there's, I, I don't think I have just like one thing, but I love, I love connecting with the audience. Like I think that's one thing that has meant a lot to me coming to NPR. It's a very different type of relationship that working for NPR that you have with the audience than you do at other places. Like it's amazing to me. Like the audience at NPR, they care. The listeners care. They are so invested. Um, they are invested in you as a person, and they are invested in the stories that you tell, and they feel connected to you, and they're they're proud of it. You know, they got the mugs and the tote bags and all. That's because they're proud of it, and it's very different from you know if you work for like Reuters or something like that. Like people aren't going around like, oh, I love Reuters. Like they may love Reuters. <laughs> But it's a different connection, right? Like, oh, I love the AP. Like, you may love it, but it doesn't feel as personal. And I, I, I think I, I do really like um, that connection. And when you know, listeners are like, oh, you taught me something I didn't know, or you know, that brought me some joy today, that lit up my day. That that makes me really happy. I'm happy to do that. Well, Aisha, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. We'd love to have you here in person sometime. I hope we can work that out. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all the listeners and, and you know, for supporting, uh, you know, KRCC. NPR's new Weekend Edition Sunday host, Aisha Rasko. She's also a former White House correspondent. Rasko spoke with KRCC's Abigail Beckman in front of a virtual audience. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. Catch Colorado Matters anytime with our podcast at Apple, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts and online at CPR.org. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.